Well, good morning. Good to gather together with you in the name of our Lord. I was told this morning that it is Leaf Sunday. So there are a lot of leafers up in the mountains. And we have gathered together to worship the God who created the trees that have leaves and give color. And we are very thankful. It felt like fall this morning, didn't it? It felt like fall when we had all our windows open this morning. And then you'd start to see the leaves starting to come down. And what a reminder of God and the variety and the diversity of his creation. And uh, we have gathered together to praise him, creator God. Uh, This week will be our last sermon in Revelation for five weeks. Uh, Let me explain. Next Sunday, we have the privilege of having a guest preacher with us, Jeremy McMorris. And he will actually be the one preaching at our men's conference uh, that will be held this Friday evening and Saturday morning. And then we've invited Jeremy to preach for us on Sunday morning. And then the five Sundays in October uh, will be occupied with our celebrating and recognizing uh, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And one way that we're going to do that is to consider what are called the five solas. Um, On October 1st, it'll be Sola Scriptura. You will know that best as Scripture alone. The Scripture alone is our highest authority. And then the second Sunday, Sola Gratia, grace alone. The third Sunday, Sola Fide, faith alone. The fourth Sunday, Solus Christus, Christ alone. And then we'll end with Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And then we will pick up again in November our study in Revelation. So open your scriptures to Revelation. Remember, it's not Revelations. It is Revelation. And we will consider this once again. But let's get out our roadmap and consider where we've been, where we're at, and where we're going. Uh, Even when I use maps on my phone, I like, do you ever do this? Even if it's only like a 30-minute drive, you, you zoom out. And you get the whole picture of your origin and, you know, your, your destination and sort of where you've come. And if there are any, like, upgrades to avoid traffic like yesterday, it did tell me to go mineral. And I took C-470 and I regretted that because my phone somehow knew that it was all backed up for no other reason than it was backed up. And so I should have taken mineral. So we're going we're gonna to zoom out real quick and we're going to look at where we've been and where we're going We're actually going to jump back to the Gospels, as Pastor Matt said this morning. We have gathered for very specific reasons. We have gathered this morning to worship Jesus Christ. If you have gathered for any other reason, and there are a lot of secondary reasons why we gather, but if you have gathered for any other reason, it is not the ultimate reason. We, didn't, we have not gathered just to get more knowledge, sort of just download more scriptural information. We have gathered to let this text fuel our worship for a person, Jesus Christ. So if you have gathered for any other reason this morning, we welcome you. But we hope that by the end of this gathering, you too are worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. The Gospels announce the arrival of a person. Right? And, and God uses the last Old Testament prophet that stems sort of 480 years of no scripture. And out of the wilderness comes this man who looks 
and who eats like an Old Testament prophet. And that's on purpose. And he starts to proclaim someone. He's, he's such a unique figure that people started to say, are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we were told? And he says, no, I am simply here to announce a person whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. I hope that's, I hope that's how you value Christ this morning. And he announces as the forerunner, a Messiah who is a Jew of the seed of Abraham. By the way, that, that identification will launch you all the way back to Genesis 12. So all of a sudden, the Scriptures start to come together for us. And then he is called the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. And that should show you Psalm 2, when the kings of the earth are told to worship the Son while there's time. He is called Emmanuel, God with us. God, in a very unique way, has come down to be with us. Then it records this miraculous birth of a virgin, which should bring to mind that this is the offspring of the woman, Genesis chapter 3, and the sign given in Isaiah 14, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew in his account of the gospel, uses that verse to tell you this is what just happened when Jesus was born of Mary. It records his sinless life and selfless ministry as a prophet whose favorite title for himself was Son of Man, which should bring some kind of recollection back to Daniel chapter 7. Then we see his sacrificial death as a Passover lamb, and that term lamb becomes sort of the operative title of Jesus in the book of Revelation. And it's what John the Baptist said, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then his victorious resurrection, so he ascended, and where is he right now? Yes, spiritually he walks among the churches, but where is he right now? He is seated at the right hand of his father waiting for something. And Psalm 110 says this is what he's waiting for. And this is going to help us understand this morning a little bit of a, a theme of vindication. He is waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. Now let's stop right there. Do you know that Jesus has enemies? He does. Matter of fact, we were all once were enemies to God, and He has reconciled us through the blood of Jesus Christ. But that's where He is bodily right now, at the right hand of the Father, waiting for His enemies to become His footstool, all along with the promise in Matthew 24 and 27 and Acts 1 that He would return. And that's what Revelation is all about, is the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, about one century after Jesus' birth, one of his faithful followers, John, finds himself exiled to the salt mines of the Mediterranean island of Patmos. You'll see that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. And it's there that John receives a series of revelations from the exalted Christ, and at the command of Christ, writes them down and distributes them through the churches. Now, look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. There are several ways that you can create an outline for the book of Revelation. This is really one of the only books that gives you an outline, at least a basic outline of its, of its own contents. And first of all, John is told to write the things 
that you have seen. So what did John see? What did he already see when he was commissioned to write? Well, he saw a vision of the exalted Christ. That's Revelation chapter 1. And it's not what John expected, was it? I mean, yeah, John was on the top of the mountain of transfiguration and he saw Jesus transfigured before them. But this was not what John expected, that this is the exalted Christ. So John is given one of the first glimpses of what Jesus looks like after he ascended to the father. And God says, write that down. Secondly, he is told to write down the things that are. So what are the things that are present day? John is on the island of Patmos. What's going on? Well, there are real churches that are also representative, perhaps, of all churches throughout the ages. And he writes down these seven messages to these churches. And these churches have some very common problems throughout history. There is idolatry. There is loss of love. There is persecution. There is faithfulness, but there is also accommodation to a godless culture. Those are the things that are. And Christ gives a message through John to these churches. And we're supposed to read those. He says, I've written these things unto the churches. So whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, which would include Highlands Baptist Church. And then he says this, write down things that must take place after this. And that's where chapter four starts. And that's sort of right where we're at. We've jumped into the things that are after this. So it is very possible these events started in John's life. It's not simply we're just waiting for all of these to still happen, but some of them may have been inaugurated and they're actually moving forward. So that's what makes Revelation difficult to interpret in many different places. So the things that you have seen, the glory of the exalted Christ, the things that are the message of Christ to his churches and the things that must take place after this. And we can we can describe it this way, the triumph of Christ over the earth. So what's the first thing John sees? Here are the things that are after this. And for John, for you to properly get it, there's a door opened in heaven and John is invited up. And the first thing he sees is what? And it is a what, not a who. And in, and in Revelation chapter four, there are three successive visual objects to sort of calibrate John's thinking as he receives this incredible imagery and these descriptions as to the things that are about to happen. So what takes place after this, that's our exegetical marker, which lets us know we're in the third part of this book as God has arranged it through John. Here's what he sees first. Chapter four, verse two. And we're not going to read the verses. This is just by way of overview. This is the roadmap. What does he see first? He sees a, a throne. Good. And that throne indicates kingdom, reign, rule, dominion, control. He, he sees the centerpiece of heaven that dominates his vision, and it's a throne. And verses 10 to 11 introduce under this sort of a, a, another theme, and it's the concept of worship, used 24 times. By the way, God's throne uh, is used 40 times in the book of Revelation, so it's a, it's a dominant theme. And Satan's throne, this is very interesting, 
is used three times. So there's a certain amount of reign and rule that Satan seems to wield, but it is insignificant compared to God's reign and rule. Next thing he sees is he sees something, and he he always does this. Remember, the one on the throne. There's never these personal pronouns. It's this, this idea of majesty. And he, and he sees the throne and the one on the throne, but he notices something specific. And he sees a scroll in the hand of the one on the throne. And in verse 2 of chapter 5, a mighty angel, don't, don't miss the importance of that. You have this mighty being created by God that is not worthy to start opening the seals. So John's thinking, well, then who, who in the world can? Remember that? He weeps. There's an emotional response to this. And that only heightens the suspense of the possible identification of one who's worthy. And then an elder says, no, there is one worthy. And that sort of brings the third visual object from a throne to the scroll to what? what is, and what is the primary image? John turns to see this Davidic king this lion-like king from the tribe of Judah, and he sees what? He sees a lamb. This becomes the title for Christ 28 times in the book of Revelation. And the basis of his worthiness is found in verse 9. I want you to look at chapter 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. See, that's why a mighty angel can't open it. That's why your favorite missionary can't open it. Because only Christ did that. So he is unique, and he is worthy. Lamb underscores this sacrificial provision on the cross. But, and this is going to be very important for us to understand And I think some of our young people need to understand this as well, that the lamb does not describe Jesus as weak. Matter of fact, you're going to see that in the next several seals and then trumpets and bowls. Matter of fact, if if, if any statement stands out as a surprise this morning when Andrew read the text, it should be this. People crying out to hide from the wrath of the lamb. That's quite a picture. I'm not sure I've ever seen a lamb even chase someone. And now you have these these colliding images. So we have to understand, folks, that we must not confuse God's long suffering with with complacency. We are responsible to a holy God for our actions. Revelation 20 will make that very clear that at the great white throne judgment, people were judged according to their their deeds. Now, are you ready for that? No, I want to be judged on the basis of Christ's deeds, His work. So, I better make sure today that I am in Christ. I am safe in Him. I am in union with Him. That I've already died and have been buried and rose again and I have His righteousness. Because if not, I'm going to stand before what I believe is Jesus Christ on a great white throne because the Father has given to Him all judgment And I don't want to be based on my deeds, judged on my deeds. 
As we move into chapter 6, and we've looked at the first four seals, we will see this, that Christ superintends world events and executes world judgments. So now you should be at chapter 6 in Revelation. And the first seals, I think if, if, we, if you noticed this last week, are not judgments per se, but providentially orchestrated stage-setting events initiated by the Lamb. These, this is the, sort of the, the table is set. You remember this? The white horse, lust for conquest over other people. Which leads to the red horse, war, international strife, the breakdown of peace, civil war. Which leads to the black horse, famine. Which leads to the pale horse, death and the grave. Conquest, war, famine, death and the grave. And we're not, we're not strangers to these things. These things have been happening. Perhaps they will escalate as we get to the last days of the last days. But that's where we've been. So that's the roadmap. Okay, that's where we've been. Now, where, where are we going? And all, the only place we're going today, hopefully, uh, is in the fifth and sixth seal. Because the seventh seal, once that seventh seal is open, then what happens? The scroll opens up to seven angels with seven trumpets. Okay, and we're going to save that. Lord willing, for November. But let's look at Revelation chapter 6. The fifth seal presents the martyrs who have suffered at the hands of a hostile world for their testimony about Jesus Christ. The sixth seal portrays the fate of the world at the hands of the Lord. So if you look at it this way, the fifth seal presents the martyrs crying out, How long? And the sixth seal is God's response to the martyr's plea. Their plea is the only prayer of petition in the entire book of Revelation. So this is going to be very important for us to understand why they are here. Because together, these testimonies provide strong encouragement to believers to be true and faithful witnesses regardless of what opposition may arise. Let's look at how it how it encourages us to do that. So first of all, the fifth seal. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Stop right there. There's already this imagery that's coming together. So John sees souls. John sees life after death. And they're there because of the slain lamb. But where are they? Where does John see them? He sees them under the altar. Now, this could refer to the altar of burnt offering, indicating their life, their blood was poured out as a sacrifice. Or it could indicate the altar of incense because they are, they are praying and that's offered up as worship to God. But probably it's best to understand as, as both of those images coming together. They have sacrificed themselves through martyrdom, and now they are pleading with God through, again, continued worship. Why were they martyred? Look at chapter 6, verse 9, the second part. They were martyred for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, now turn with me. Uh, go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, because you're going to see this formula used four times. I want you to actually see it 
because this will be the common theme. This is how this picture, this seal, encourages us to maintain a faithful witness regardless of what opposition may arise. Of John, it says, chapter 1, verse 2, I'm going to begin reading in the middle of the verse, who bore witness to what? To the Word of God and to what? To the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 9, chapter 1. Then John says of himself, I, John, okay, I'm going to go ahead to this next phrase, was on the island called Patmos. Okay, why was he there? On account of, what does it say? The Word of God and what? The testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, we looked at chapter 6, verse 9. Go forward now to chapter 20, verse 4. This one will be interesting because this sort of imagery captures our attention. Because of the saints in Revelation 20, verse 4, John says of those beheaded, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Okay, why were they beheaded? Why did they have their heads separated from their shoulders? For the testimony of who? Jesus. And for what? And for the word of God. Now let's just pause there. How how do we apply that? Do you understand that your belief in God's word as a final authority, your obedience to scripture, your unwillingness to compromise truth, your gracious refusal to accommodate with a homosexual or transgender agenda may cost you your life. And if if you're in here this morning and you're upset with that statement, then, then your anger is directed to God who made it very clear in His Word what He expects from us. Who made it very clear when He used words like abomination. And that does not mean we deal with them in anger or hate. But we graciously refuse to accommodate to that kind of agenda. Which means that if some of our young people here would like to pursue a career in media, if you are going to be true to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ, you will probably not be hired. Or if you really want to teach at a high-level, secular, Ivy League college, and you hold to Scripture's teachings, you will probably not be hired. And this is a form of persecution, but I hope we understand that as as we live in a post-postmodern, hostile, secular culture that is in a tailspin, that these might come with even a greater price. So when you refuse to slander or cheat or lie to get ahead, or you consistently witness to the exclusivity of Christ, which means no one goes to the Father except through Jesus Christ, and you hold firm because how can you say that? That's so unkind. And you hold firm to Jesus' teaching in John 14, verse 6. That will come with a hefty cost. It may cost you close family relationships. It may cost you friends. It may cost you acceptance. It may cost you the popular vote. It may cost you money. It may cost you a promotion. It may cost you a ministry. It may cost you your life. Now, 
lest you think we're merely being sensational, let me remind you of Jesus' warning in Mark. Just listen. I'll give you the reference afterwards. Our Lord Jesus said this, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Why were these martyrs killed? For the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, notice their request begins in an unusual way. It's it's an anguished plea for justice. Some of us in here have offered for years an anguished plea for justice. And we're still waiting. See, these martyrs had been condemned most likely in a human court. So now they are appealing from under the altar to the highest court imaginable. And look at verse 10 of chapter 6. They cried out with a loud voice. And I want you to notice the basis of their appeal. Um, the character traits of God, which they sort of invoke. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They start by affirming the majesty of God, sovereign and acknowledgement of absolute power and authority, holy Distinct, set apart from all wickedness. But, he's, but he's, he's unique even in the sense that he's not simply set apart from wickedness because even before sin entered the world, God is holy. God is holy even without sin to contrast him with. In that sense, he is one of a kind. He is unique. There is no one like him. And these martyrs cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true He is faithful. There is no falsehood. There is no lying. There is no untruth. And we need to remember this. There is no injustice with God. And then they call him the judge. See, the question is not whether God will judge the transgressors, but but when. Someone has once said, justice delayed is not justice escaped. The two verbs in the martyr's request in chapter 10 are very specific. How long before you will judge and how long before you avenge our blood? Very peculiar request. The word judge seems to function as a prelude to the rest of the the seventh seal, the seventh trumpets, and the seven bowls. How long until you judge? Well, those judgments John will see in a vision begin to be poured out. So the time, so the question is not, will God judge, but when? Okay, so John, you're going to see this as the scroll is opened and the trumpets are blown and the bowls are poured out upon humanity. 
And then second, how long before you avenge our blood? Strong wording. We're not used to hearing that. How long before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Let me read to you uh, what the martyr's plea seems to be alluding to. Psalm 79, verse 10. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Sometimes what is actually included in the psalm surprises us because we go to some of the, the more encouraging psalms when we're downcast or when we want to see Jesus as a shepherd leading sheep by still water. But here in the psalmist says, let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations. This verb is used again in chapter 19, verse 2 in Revelation. Let me read that to you. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged, there's that verb, on her the blood of his servants. It's also seen, if you back up in Revelation 16, verse 5 to 7, I'll just read a portion of this. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Is that uncomfortable? <laughs> To hear about a God who vindicates, about a God who avenges, about a God who will bring justice in his time and in his way. I hope as God's people we find that encouraging, strengthening, and, and a cause for persevering and being a faithful witness to the word of God and to Christ, regardless of what may arise. Look at what they receive and what they are told. Look at verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I don't necessarily find that encouraging, right? Because basically it's a message of the killing's not done yet. There are going to be other people like you, who are going to be martyred for being faithful to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ. Well, let's start by what they're given. They're given a white robe. That, that picture is used five times in this book, and it seems to simply be a reward for faithfulness, perhaps also of purity. Matter of fact, in Revelation 7, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, listen, clothed in white robes. And verse 14 says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're given white robes. They were faithful. And they're now told to show the same faithful perseverance now as they did on the earth. They're told to rest a little longer. Hard to determine what little means. Does that mean it's imminent? Probably. Um, it's probably, when, 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 it's hard to understand because God's delays are gracious. 
We always say, why hasn't Christ come back yet? And we'll see that later on in a verse in Second Peter, that his delay is gracious. But even Satan knows his time is short. Revelation 12, 12, the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So there's this divine understanding that this is imminent and the time is short. And pause for a second on the word rest. This is repeated again in Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. We had talked about this a little bit yesterday. My wife and I went to visit a dear saint who is battling the very painful cancer and she does not have rest. She finds medically induced sleep, but no rest. Even the eating of a small amount of pureed food uh, brings such incredible pain that the desire is to never eat again. No rest. And we covered this theme, and I pointed towards the end of Revelation where all these things are moving, where it says that God makes all things new. And He is creating a new heaven and a new earth. In that place there will be, and, and we read this to her, no more pain. For the martyrs, I think perhaps it was the fear, maybe the pain of torture before they were killed. The fear of actually being marched forward to a sure death. There'll be none of that in heaven. But the martyrs are crying out now, sort of as representative, to remind us, folks, that even martyrdom and suffering are in God's control. Right? So if you trip over anything in Revelation 6 or 7, all the way through Revelation 16, you've got to keep returning to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. There is one on the throne, and there is worship by these incredible beasts and by elders, and they're crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you're reminded of that again in chapter 5. So when you get into these sort of these horizontal details, we've got to remember there is a sovereign God who loves His children. And He is completely in control. And that includes martyrdom and suffering. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Let's look at the sixth seal. We won't spend as much time here. And this certainly seems to be something that has not happened yet. So you have the four horses that seem to have been galloping across humanity for centuries. You have the martyrs crying out. Okay, that has happened. Uh, you know, during John's time, John was even facing persecution uh, on the island of Patmos. And martyrs had been killed, and there are more to be killed, including the two witnesses in Revelation that we'll see. But this seems to be a future event. And the sixth seal portrays the end of the cosmos as humanity knows it. So it doesn't seem to be a repeatable judgment like the horses. 
but it seems to be a one-time event. Chapter 6, verse 12. When he, remember who the he is, it's the Lamb, it's Jesus Christ. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll. Now, that would have been an image they were familiar with. If the, if the scroll were laid out and you were reading the contents, that scroll would all of a sudden be folded up and put back in place. So it totally folds up and disappears. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. Stop right there because it's very important. Having Christ as Lord and Savior is what matters. Not social status. Not economic status. Not military status. The generals cry out, the rich, the powerful, the great ones, the slave and the free, and they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. By the way, that is a typical hiding place when you are being pursued by an enemy. By the way, who is pursuing them? We have to go back to Revelation 4 and 5 after we answer this. God is. God is pursuing to vindicate and to avenge. In verse 16, they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Folks, if God is not your Lord and Savior on this side of the grave, he will be your judge on the other side. If he is your Lord and Savior now on this side of eternity, he is your father and friend on the other side of eternity. And I hope there is no one ever within our influences who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because they will be ones that are crying out for the great day of the wrath and of the wrath of the Lamb. That's what the sixth seal announces. The day of the wrath of the Lamb. It's the first of 18 references to wrath in this book. Now again, if you were here last week and I had that little nesting doll, uh, it's not like there's a sort of a straight timeline of events where you have seal, 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 and trumpet, 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 bowl, bowl, bowl. It seems to be more of a cyclical pattern where the seals are repeated in the trumpets, but they're developed further, and then the trumpets are developed with even greater detail in the bowls. And what, what leads me to believe that is that the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal also talk about these cosmic disturbances. Disturbances, that would be an understatement. The dissolving of the heavens. And so you have it expressed, not mildly, but somewhat bluntly in the seals. It's going to get worse when the trumpets describe it. And even worse when that bowl is poured out. So the shaking of the heavens, the dissolving of the heavens is repeated in the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl to emphasize this. God's coming judgment. And it's taken from Joel chapter 2. Let me read Joel chapter 2, 10 to 11. 
The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And then he asks the question, who can endure it? Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So what about God's gracious delays? Let me read you one more passage in Second Peter, and then we're going to look at the very end of Revelation in conclusion. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Okay, why? Not wishing that any should perish. See, that's the character of our Lord. But that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Our practical holiness and godliness is not a waste of a life. And it may be that very quality in your life that allows you to be a faithful witness to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ, which could eventually to lead, could eventually lead to martyrdom. So be true and faithful witnesses regardless of what opposition may arise. And we're going to add this to that statement for the end is near. Now, this all points, we're not going to just stop there on the dissolving of the heavens, okay? because this all moves somewhere. Let me just have you turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Okay, this is now post-dissolving of the heavens. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, chapter 4, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Look at chapter 22, verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So what does Christ's coming soon have to do with believers? There is the certainty of accountability, the security of those in Christ, and instruction to us as his church. What does his coming soon have to do with unbelievers? Isaiah says, 
that God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear in allegiance. Paul picks that up in Philippians 2 verse 10. And then Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he himself may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you have never done that, what keeps you from calling on him right now? If God has granted you the gift of conviction that he is Lord, and there is the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb, and there are people that are crying to be hidden from that, what keeps you from calling out to him? For with the mouth one makes confession, and with the heart one believes that Jesus Christ is Lord. And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be safe, saved, because you are in Christ. Let's pray.